Well, we're studying biblical church leadership this morning, and it is a humbling topic for me to uh, dive into. It's the final theme of our Healthy Church series on biblical church leadership, or being biblical church leadership. And it's a theme that should be capturing the attention of all of you. You might say, well, I'm not a church leader, I'm not aspiring to be a pastor, Perhaps as a a woman, you're saying, I I can't be a pastor, and so I'm just going to check out. But in the providence of God, we are thinking through the nominating process as a church body for deacon and deaconess. And those two roles are really one office of a servant who's qualified spiritually and who God raises up to serve in the body in a unique and set-apart way. Now, whether it's time for you to be raised up in that way or affirmed in that way or not, we should all as men and women within the body of Christ strive to be spiritually useful, strive towards being ready. It's like Paul's word to Timothy, be ready in season and out of season, to be qualified, to be Useful within the spiritual gift that God has given you to serve within the body of Christ. And so I want all of you, men and women, boys and girls, to think through the question of what is God calling me to do here at this local church? What is my life supposed to be spent on doing? And more importantly than doing, Who am I supposed to be spiritually so that I can be useful for the master as a vessel who he has saved and who is called for such a time as this? In the providence of God, we've been studying on church health and spiritual leadership, I think in God's design, is the application step to everything we've been thinking through all summer long. And as Pastor Steve Hatter just mentioned, it's our constitutional commitment to annually nominate people within the body of Christ to be spiritual leaders. In this round, deacons and deaconesses, it's something we typically have handled um, by summer um, at this point. But the elders um, really wanted to be cautious this year. We had some pressing matters just with um, our staff and dynamics where we wanted to be very, very careful to lay out this process well so we could think it through deliberately, spiritually and humbly, and not walk into it pragmatically. We don't want to force or rush the identification of spiritual leaders ever within the church. And so somehow in God's design, all of this is gelling around a sermon series that I think will be maybe two sermons, maybe more. We'll just see how it goes in terms of what the Lord has laid on my heart and what is resonating with you as we open God's word together. So there'll be packets coming, there'll be an application step, there'll be something to think through. And this is another aspect of understanding spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is not something only that you should aspire to do or be, but it's also something that you are called to as the body of Christ to discern. You have to discern whom should be a leader within your church. 
Who is qualified to handle the word of God? Who is qualified to model Christ in service to you and to a watching world? It's a significant thing to appoint people to ministry. You say, why is that significant? If you go back in the book of Acts, there was a conflict within the early church in Acts 6 where the Hellenists were complaining that their elderly were being neglected. The widows were not being served and they knocked on the door proverbially of the apostles saying, you're neglecting the widows. Are you, are you doing something where there are the pure Jews who are being favored over the Hellenists, which were the Greek-speaking Jews? And so their answer was to set apart people for service to set apart deacons or ministers within the body of Christ. Verse six, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom whom you will appoint to this duty. And two of those were Stephen and Philip, and there were others who were very powerful leaders and they preached, they were, they were serving, they were doing all kinds of things, they were evangelizing, but they were also waiting tables and they were freeing up the apostles for the ministry of the word and prayer, right? For preaching. Why should we neglect preaching? We want the ministry to be full orbed and to be fully ablaze to impact the world, to impact the movement of Christianity, to unleash the church to grow and multiply. And guess what? Through that appointing process, that's exactly what happened. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 6, Acts 6, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there was exponential growth through the appointing process through Deacons being identified and deaconesses being identified ultimately throughout the New Testament history of the church. I say deacon and deaconesses, I should clarify the way that we apply 1 Timothy 3, and I'm going to unpack it later, is that the word diakonoi is applied to both men and women within the church and certain other denominations don't do this. They don't understand um, deacons and deaconesses in that way, but I'll explain that. It simply is the verb to minister and we're all to be ministering in the body of Christ. So the qualifications of a deacon and deaconess are very significant, as are the qualifications of being an elder are very significant. And understanding these qualifications is how you as the body of Christ can discern who should be in leadership, when and why and how long. It's part of the church health that we are a part of. Those who you appoint to serve will determine the health of the church now and in terms of its long-term effectiveness. This is the stewardship that you own as the body of Christ here. So we're not just talking, again, I know I'm beating a proverbial dead horse here, but we're not just talking about whether you should be in an office or a position right now, but you're talking about discerning from God's word. Who is God raising up right now for such a time as this for our church? Romans 12, 6 says that all of you have a spiritual gift. Some of you will be elders. Some of you will be deacons. Some of you will be deacons and deaconesses. However, 
all of you as Christians who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are called to serve with your spiritual gift. Do you understand that? This is very important for you to understand. This has been something that has been neglected, I would even confess, in this pulpit in terms of calling the church to ministry within the church. Ministry not just to the watching world, but ministry to each other within the body of Christ. What is your spiritual gift? How should you be used within this church? Should be a question that is on your mind regularly. The Bible says from Romans 12, 6, that you have differing gifts according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Let us use them. How are you supposed to be used? You say, church is boring, or church is lame, or church is unexciting. Well, perhaps you're just not yet participating in church. Maybe you've not tasted of what it's like to use your spiritual gift. I'm not bored right now. (laughs) I'm kind of excited about what I'm doing, and I'll just say this as a... As a confession, I never was able to publicly speak before I started to preach. I couldn't. I was scared to death to give speeches in school. I I would get nervous. I would get blotchy. I would lose train of thought. I didn't know where I was or what I was doing when I was speaking. So I don't know how when I became a Christian, I started to become a preacher. But the desire became overwhelming. I yielded to it. And here I am preaching to you today. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's how the Holy Spirit shows up through your giftedness. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You each have a spiritual gift. You're converted. The Holy Spirit resides within you and you have a manifestation. You have a gift by the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit is present through that gift in the body of Christ. So you should prayerfully consider not just what you are supposed to do, but who you are supposed to be here in terms of your giftedness, in terms of being qualified for usefulness in terms of your giftedness. Another reason why church might seem disconnected from your life experience or something that you just attend and evaluate and leave is perhaps you have sins in your life, sin patterns in your heart, things that you need to confess, things that you need to repent of to unleash you to spiritually be used in the body of Christ, things that you need to lay down, things that you need to let go, things that you need to flee from to unfetter you for service in the body of Christ. That is what these messages are about. Now, I am keying off of the chapter from Nine Marks of a Healthy Church on spiritual leadership. I did use the outline points that Mark Dever wrote in his chapter. I tweaked him a little bit, but this is a sermon from my own voice. Leadership, first of all, is congregational. So we're defining leadership. Leadership, first and foremost, is congregational, and that's what I've been alluding to so far. This is an us thing. This is not just about the paid employees at the church that are leaders. And we understand that pastors and directors and people are set apart for 
a 40-hour week, a 50-hour week of service, and that's great. But leadership is, in essence, at its core, congregational. This is an us thing. And there has been confusion about this in the body of Christ, and it's not just a passive confusion. It's a very active and profound one, because when you start to think about leadership being congregational, it begs the question, then who's in charge? Who's in charge? What is the structure and design of leadership? If we're all in charge, then no one's in charge. But really, the Bible provides clear direction, not vagaries, but clear direction for how there can be healthy dynamism, healthy interaction between official leaders and the body of Christ leading within their own sphere of influence and the inner dynamics between spiritual pastors, elders, deacon, deaconesses, and those within the body of Christ. This is part of defining the roles of a family, of a household of faith for usefulness and service within this 21st century local church. Well, there's some reasons that have create there there are sort of created confusions within the church first of all our culture is anti-authoritarian we've hit on this some this summer but uh, words like obedience or obeying or submission are no-nos in our culture today they're next to uh even being called hate speech today authoritarianism is wrong but authority is right Authority is how we keep from being chaotic in society and also how we keep from being chaotic within a church. God has not given us a a group to be chaotic in, but something that has structure. Well, because our culture is anti-authoritarian, it does seep within the church and creates confusion here where we might be tempted to say, who do you think you are to tell me this or that in terms of who I am and what I should do? Really, the first confusion creates all kinds of secondary confusions. And the church leadership has not done a great job approaching the Bible to answer this question. Instead, a lot of times the church at large will oversimplify the answer and say, oh yeah, the Bible does say that we are in charge and that's good enough for me in terms of an answer, right? Well, it's really not good enough. It becomes dictatorial. It becomes off-putting for congregants to hear this sort of strong-armed approach, this top-down alignment where they say, look, you just need to obey and submit because the Bible says so and that's it. A lot of times that engenders passivity in the congregation where a congregation, whether knowingly or not, just says, okay, well, the leaders are in charge. They've got it. They have their strong position, so I'm going to show up, and I'm going to leave, and I'm going to sort of be passive, and I'm going to be a spectator, I'm going to be a customer, I'm going to be a consumer, I'm going to be an evaluator. I mean, some of you are really good at critique, right? You know, you're, you're the person who comes in and says, eh, you know, it was about a five today, or maybe a four, or maybe well, today was a nine and a half. That's awesome. And that was my job in the body of Christ. The Bible knows nothing of that kind of critique. That's just programmatic worldliness. I mean, that's not what you're supposed to be about. Passive customers can wander in and out according to preferences, but there's also a reverse effect that takes place as well where congregants also will be drawn to strong leadership and not biblically strong leadership, but 
the, the strong leadership where, where a pastor becomes a person's icon, a person's idol, a person's leader that they become codependent underneath. And they want to be told what to do at a level where they can disengage in that way. So you can disengage as a person who's a consumer or a customer and you're disengaged in terms of critiquing what's going on. Or you can become a passively disengaged person by just focusing on a leader and becoming codependent. You say, I don't have to think. They're like my personal trainer. They tell me how to to walk, talk, think, what to read, how to dress, how to smile, how to frown. I mean, that's it. They just do it for me. And so I can disengage from my spiritual gift and responsibility in that way. Both of those are really errant ways to respond in leadership. On the other hand, there's an approach towards congregational passivity as well, where leaders say, I don't want to be a strong-arming leader. I just sort of want to be passively part of the body of Christ. I don't ever want to take a stand. I don't ever want to assert any kind of authority, even from God's word. And so leadership can become so passive and afraid to stand in the gap and lead a fearing an accusation of being heavy-handed that there's no leadership structure at all. And that makes a congregation completely vulnerable. Congregation can be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They can become just utterly weak and whimsical and drawn away by things that are errant. So how do we find the balance? What is God's God's words balance for us? How does the Bible teach us healthy leadership Structure. Well, the Bible gives a clear prescription for leadership, how spiritual members are to interact with spiritual leaders. So here's a couple bookending verses just to get us started. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 gives the bookends of being spiritual leaders and being spiritual followers. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. First Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So a spiritual leader in one sense is to be obeyed, is to be followed, is to be submitted to, is someone who's watching over someone's soul. And at the same time, 1 Peter 5, you're to shepherd, you're to guide, you're to be out in front of the flock as an example. And you're not heavy-handed. You're not doing it out of a mixed motive for shameful gain. You're doing it eagerly. And you're not over-shepherding or hyper-shepherding in a domineering way. This is spiritual leadership. Say, well, what is my responsibility as a member in the church, really. Let's just dig to the core. I've heard someone say before that, you know, well, we get a vote once a year and, you know, that's our thing that we do and and that's it. Well, if you only think in terms of church constitutional polity, I guess you you could create that kind of mindset or accusation, but I want to curb that and correct that with what scripture says. Matthew 18 says that if someone is in sin, you go to them and you confront them and you talk to them about it, right? 
And then if they reject that, then you bring a couple witnesses. And then if they reject that through a process of confrontation and trying to seek someone's restoration, there's step three. And step three is Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, what? Tell it to the church. This is where the church is invited into a rescue mission. You say, how often does that happen? Well, how many of you are sinning right now? How much sin is there in this room right now? Right? I'm not saying that judgmentally. I'm just saying it practically. We're all born in sin. We all have patterns of sin. We all have issues in our lives that need to be dealt with. So how open of a process is it for our sin that we should be involved in the pursuit of each other? It should be very open. There should be a lot of private, honest conversations that are going on within this flock where we're helping each other. And when someone falls down or someone's guard goes up, then what should you do? You should take a brother or sister with you and invite them into this rescue mission. And then, if necessary, you bring it to the spiritual leadership. And then it comes to the whole church for the rescue mission to go on. And I've seen people rescued within the body of Christ in this way. Who is Jesus talking to in Matthew 18? Is he talking to elders within a church? Well, the church wasn't yet established, but he's talking to all Christians. 1 Corinthians 5 is where Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are, delivered, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Who's Paul talking to in 1 Corinthians 5? A leadership committee? Pastors who are ordained with masters of divinities? No. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the body of Christ. There needs to be a gravitas that is welling up in your heart of stewardship for the holiness of each other. Where you say, I have a stewardship. I am commissioned. I am a a caregiver as a member of the body of Christ for each other. That's, that's part of what you are. 2 Corinthians 2.6 says there was a majority who were working with people who were in sin and the majority was enough. In other words, the pressure that was coming from the majority of the church, where the church was either voting politically or voting by their actions, they were, they were communicating pressure on someone where it was enough and the person said, uncle. And they said, okay, I give, I repent, I'm okay. And Paul's sort of, Saying, church, you, you, can, you can lessen the pressure now. But this is a church movement. Galatians 1.6 also talks about guarding the gospel. Paul was addressing the church when he said, I'm astonished that you've deserted the gospel. You've gone to a different gospel. If you look at first and first and second Timothy and Titus, those epistles, those letters are talking to the church. Now, Paul's addressing Timothy, but he's addressing the church through those letters saying, guard the gospel. Keep track of it. People vote formally in churches and they vote informally, right? You vote with your funds and you vote with your feet in terms of what, whether you like things are, that are going on or not. And that's all actually fair within the body of Christ because we hold a responsibility to be, as 2 Corinthians 11 says, a pure and chaste virgin, to be holy, to to remember the pure and simple devotion to Christ. I thought I would dig into the Constitution a little bit this morning for your 
listening pleasure. Um, I, I went there just to say, what is it that we've constituted around regarding protecting ourselves spiritually and protecting ourselves doctrinally? Well, it says the congregation, according to Article 6, church officers, that, that's the title, the congregation shall elect officers to perform duties for specific terms for the corporation. The corporation is kind of a worldly term, but you get it in terms of our congregation, that you are to elect officers. And the offices of elder and deacon are, are live in our minds. Article 6, under elders, it says responsibilities. The elders will be directly responsible to Jesus Christ, the head of the church, and are instructed by him to have oversight and manage all matters of church life and practice. Now listen, the elders are responsible to seek the wisdom of God through prayer and the wisdom of spirit-filled members of the church before making decisions affecting the whole assembly. Efforts should be made through careful explanation and prayer to have the whole assembly in agreement as decisions are made. This is a difficult balance to live as a church leadership because as spiritual overseers, which are elders or pastors, we are trying to seek God's will to understand where God is moving us as a leadership team we dialogue very, um, very carefully, very precisely over long periods of time. We pray diligently every single Sunday together as an eldership. We pray for you. We pray for direction. But at the same time, we are to communicate with you. We're to get a pulse from you as spiritual members within the body of Christ. Where do you think we should go? Sometimes we've taken votes. Sometimes we've shared in open sessions at business meetings, sharing ideas. It's a very difficult process. It's a subjective process. But this is a process that you are called to step into as spirit-filled believers within the body of Christ. You're supposed to know your elders. You say, well, I don't know my elders. Well, whose fault is that? I don't know. Maybe it's my fault. I'll take the blame. But you need to know your elders. You need to know your pastors. You need to have relationships with them. And you need to talk and share your heart in terms of where you think the church should go, where you think, how you think the church is going. We get this kind of feedback in church membership um, meetings often, but the casual or even very serious conversations that go on week after week are very important for the betterment of the whole. And the Bible calls us to this, not just a church constitution. This isn't just a political statement. This is an us church body has the responsibility to make sure God is honored here, to make sure the word is rightly preached. And we've talked about that, where I'm in error or seemingly in error, you need to call me out on that or any of us in terms of our curriculum, in terms of who's teaching. There are commands to be obeyed. There's a character to be reflected in godliness here that we are called to protect. So it's a far cry from being just an attender. And this church... And this church culture is one that tempts, I believe, the average person who comes into this door to be more of a consumer or more of someone who just shows up and leaves than a normal, typical church. We live in a vacation town. We live in a very transient community. There's a lot of coming and going. There's a lot of vacationing. There's a lot of things in our culture that can tempt us 
to either sit idle or to come and leave and not participate. But I'm telling you, as we've talked about in terms of evangelism, as we've talked about in terms of discipleship, and now I'm going to say in terms of finding out your spiritual gift and applying it, you're missing out if you don't engage on this level. And I want to try to show you from Scripture how you can engage, how you can find out where you fit in within this local assembly. Because that's the question. How do I fit in? What do I do? What is the practical step that I should take to really be engaged and taste and see that God is good here? How can I find satisfaction within the body of Christ here? It's a difficult question to ask. And it's difficult to discern, but the Bible is clear in terms of how to do it. And that's what I'm going to attempt to show you and open up for you now from God's word. And I would say that a good place to look first and foremost is into the spiritual qualifications of being a spiritual leader. The qualifications of being a spiritual leader within the New Testament can help you solve this question. Because using your spiritual gift is less about your personality and less about what you should do or sign up for and more about who you are. If you're walking with Christ, if you're becoming more like Christ, if you're evaluating the sin issues in your life and you're repenting of those issues, ministry typically just falls open for you. You say, that sounds very passive. No, being aggressive about you is what the Bible calls you to do. Being aggressive about being godly is what the Bible calls you to do, not just signing up, signing your name on a clipboard. Now, again, we're going to put clipboards out in a few weeks. Don't hold that against us, but, but we want you to sign up. We want to, we want to set the table. We want to show you where to plug in. But the Bible, especially in terms of these qualifications, is all about who you are more than what you do. It's about a 90, 10%, 90%, 10% split there or, or, or proportion there where 90% of finding out how you're to be used in the body of Christ is about character and about 10% is practically what you do. I'll show you this from scripture. Well, first, how does someone become a spiritual leader? I remember I was candidating for a church before God sent me here and this person on the search committee looked at me right in the eyes and he said, you know, respect is earned over a long period of time. And I remember thinking, well, he's wise. There's truth to that. But I also remember feeling sort of vacuous inside and empty. Like, what does he mean by that? You know, how long would respect, would it take for respect truly to be earned or for trust truly to be earned? And who's capable really of earning anyone's respect at the level of being a pastor. I mean, of course, Paul told Timothy, set an example, 1 Timothy 4.12, in speech and conduct, and the qualifications are something that we strive to grow in. But quoting Mark Dever, he said, the kind of trust we're called to give fellow imperfect humans, be they family, friends, employers, governing officials, or leaders in the church, can never finally be earned. It must be given as a gift. Think about that. Listen a little bit more with this quote. Respect is, or trust is given as a gift, a gift of faith in trust, more of the God who gives than of the leaders he has given. So when someone is in the body of Christ and they're 
in a position of leadership, yeah, respect needs to be earned and respect needs to be maintained, but that's only half true. The other fact and reality is, is that God puts a person into a position, and so you're trusting God on behalf of that person. That's how this works. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13, God gives gifts to the body. And so in one sense, you can say, I don't know how I could ever earn the trust and respect of someone enough to be a Bible study leader or to be a Sunday school teacher or discipling anyone. How could I earn that kind of credibility? Well, you have to also trust God that he's going to put you in positions as you're growing in grace. We want to grow, don't we? We all want to grow. We all want to be like Christ. So just do that and be that and watch God place you in a position and a role of influence. So what does this look like? Well, first of all, I want to say this. In terms of eldership, it's always plurality. It's always plurality in Scripture. Um, In church history, especially in the Baptist denominations, uh, there was a movement away from the plurality of eldership and a movement towards the senior pastorate. But the Bible always speaks in terms of plurality, a plurality of leaders, a a community of gifted men who oversee a church. And I think this is a good place for us to start in terms of identifying what does spiritual leadership look like? What are the qualifications of leadership? It's not raising someone up as a rock star or a superstar over a group. It's, it's actually finding someone who is spiritually qualified, who can lead as a leader amongst leaders, directing and guiding people and influencing them spiritually. The plurality of eldership is always defined in Scripture. Acts 14, 23, 16, 4, 20, Titus 1:5, James 5, 14, all speak to leaders in plurality. 1 Peter 5, 1, I, I love this. This is Paul's testimony as a leader. Peter's testimony as a leader. Here's Peter who was given... Um, at least in terms of leadership, he was given the keys to the kingdom in terms of his preaching ministry in the book of Acts where the church was spawned. It was upon his confession that Jesus is the true Messiah, that the church was born and built. And so Peter, though he had denied Christ, had been restored, and he was a, a writer of First and Second Peter in the New Testament. This is a leader amongst leaders. And this is how he addresses himself in 1 Peter 5.1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. That's Peter. Just let that sink in for a second. I exhort the elders among you, so plurality of leaders in, in a flock, in a situation, and I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And then he goes into shepherding the flock and not doing it in a domineering way. And then in that context, it talks about younger men being submissive under the elders be subject verse 5 to the elders he's not peter's not saying be subject to me because i'm the leader in fact if you trace the history of leadership through the book of acts peter actually sort of halfway through acts fades into the background and who becomes more of a prominently known leader and missionary through the rest of acts paul so the leadership mantle is kind of fluid amongst leaders And truly, the chief shepherd will appear, and he's the true leader of the church. 
Ephesians um, was the Ephesian church was filled with elders who gathered around Paul in Acts 20 at Miletus in verse 28. Paul said, be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he's obtained with his own blood. An elder or a leader is someone who is, who is titled by three different titles. First of all, presbyteroi or, or elder is someone who is spiritually older or spiritually mature within the body of Christ. It's also an episcopoi, which is overseer, someone who's, who can get up 30,000 feet and see the big picture of what is going on and discern with directional influence as to where the church is going and should go. And then lastly, the word shepherd, poimain, which is also the word for pastor. Is used. And so a pastor is an elder, is an overseer. It's one office with three different titles, which, which speak to three different ways that a leader is to lead within the flock. He's spiritually mature as an example. He's overseeing things from a big picture. He's responsible in terms of stewardship with the doctrine of the church and the direction of the church. And then he's a shepherd. He's someone who smells like the sheep. He knows the lives of the people. He's down in the trenches. He's praying for the people. He's with them. He's guiding them. He's directing them with gentleness and firmness. He's tough and he's tender. He's a defender against wolves. He's a protector of the flock. He's all of these things, but it's not just one leader. It's a plurality. He's someone who can work in a team and do it together. That is God's design. Well, how do we know if someone is really being called to be one of these leaders? We're starting with this office of eldership. We'll get to deacons and deaconesses in time. But how do we know that someone is called to do this? How are you as a member, a spirit-filled member of the body of Christ supposed to discern whether someone is an elder? And we probably could use some more elders in Anchorage Grace Church. How do you know if God is calling you or how do you know if you're supposed to help appoint someone to an office like this? It's a significant decision and part of your life. Well, Titus 1.5 is clear that Paul was saying that he left Titus, his young disciple on the island of Crete, which kind of reminds me of Alaska, by the way, a, a rock out in the middle of the Mediterranean, which was filled with all kinds of people that were there, independent-minded people, if you read if, um, Titus chapter 1. Well, he was there primarily, he said, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. So this was Titus, this was his mission. This is what he was supposed to do. Recognize people who are gifted and compelled by the Holy Spirit to serve. How do you recognize someone like that? And I'll just say it this way. You need to find people within the church that are doing the work of eldership because of an internal desire. First Timothy 3 says that someone who aspires to the office of overseer and desires, this is epithemia, a Greek word for strong, passionate desire. They really want to do it. That's a noble task. 
1 Timothy 3, verse 1. You find someone who's got that desire. They're not compelled externally. They're not compelled by a mixed motive. They're not compelled with a wrong agenda. They're not compelled for shameful gain. They're not manipulating the process. It's a spirit-wrought desire that, that comes from the inside. Remember, the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 20, appoints. He's the one who, who finds people to be his elders. And he does it through this internal work within the heart. And then while that internal desire is brimming and growing within a person's life and they're exercising their gift and, and they're, they're eldering without the title, basically, within the body of Christ because of this desire, they're saying, I've got to teach the word. I've got a disciple. I've got to be praying for people. I could be going doing this activity or that activity. I could be you know vacationing or I could be spending my money this way or that. But woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I've got to do it. I know I don't know enough, you know, biblical knowledge yet, but I know enough to teach somebody else. It's that kind of burning desire and passion that fills the heart. And you see that person, and then you begin to evaluate that person's life with the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And when there's an internal desire and there's a match in terms of the qualifications of a person's life and their doctrine, then usually that means that person needs to be an elder. Typically. And that's the process. Paul told Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. The the gift comes from the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake. It's a flame. And Paul is saying to Timothy, fan that thing, stir it up, stoke the flame, go for it. Because There were men in the church who laid their hands on you and affirmed you to be able to do this. I'll never forget when I was 26 years old and I had become a pastor um, for the first time as an associate pastor and I was ordained. And at the end of the ordination process, all the elders of the church gathered around me and I got down on my knees, I think, and they, they laid their hands on me. And someone told me, a fellow associate pastor, because I was scared to death of being ordained and working through that process. He said, when they lay hands on you, you will never forget that moment in your life. And I never did. It was super powerful. And it's a, it's a symbol of what God has done for me and what he does for people who are set apart in ministry. We say, well, I'll never be set apart in that way. I mean, sometimes talking about being spiritually qualified can create hopelessness in your heart. And it shouldn't because all of you are called to be like Christ, right? As a spirit-filled believer, whether you're ever an elder, a deacon, or a deaconess, we're all called to be like Christ. Christ promises to grow you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's going to bring you from conversion all the way, Romans 8, 28 and 29, all the way to glorification. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's transforming you from one level of glory to the next. You're being sanctified. What that means is you're becoming more and more and more qualified for spiritual leadership, whatever it looks like, whether it's official or not throughout your lifetime. So you need to have great hope that God's working. He's working even when you're not working, even when you're failing, he's working and he's bringing you along. Paul told Timothy again, 
Let no one despise you for your youth, 1 Timothy 4.12, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity, 1 Timothy 4.12. So what does this look like? Again, back to the Constitution, just for your listening pleasure, just, just for fun. Here we go. This is just ways that we've constituted ourselves together. Article 6, church officers, after much prayer and waiting upon God, this is what you are constituted to do as members. The membership will annually recommend men they consider qualified to serve on the board of elders. After further prayer and waiting upon the Lord, the board of elders will present one or more candidate to the congregation for ratification. So you are the ones who appoint, and then it goes to the eldership. So we're working hand in glove together. Okay, these are names for consideration. And oftentimes, as an elder board, we will say, well, maybe, maybe in about a year's time, that person will be ready to serve as an elder. Sometimes it's immediate, and sometimes it takes a while. But it's through prayerful consideration. It's through working together with a man or with men and considering their qualifications and the, and the timing for them to lead spiritually a flock and to be part of the team. So how do you know when this desire is from the Holy Spirit? It's just when there is the internal drive and it meets with the qualifications. Os Guinness In a book called Dining with the Devil, he's a great theologian. He said there's a secularizing influence within the church, and I think it's true. Have you ever noticed how people are affirmed because of secular accomplishments rather than spiritual ones? He said, in distinct contrast to the widespread conservative fallacy of the 80s, the sharpest challenge of modernity is not secularism, but secularization. Secularism is a philosophy. Secularization is a process. Whereas the philosophy is obviously hostile and touches only a few, the process is largely invisible and touches many. Being openly hostile, secularism rarely deceives Christians. I mean, secular things in terms of philosophies rarely deceive us. But he says, being much more subtle, secularization often deceives Christians before they're aware of it including those in the church growth movement. How else can one explain the comment of a Japanese businessman to a visiting Australian? He says, whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. It's kind of indicting. We're supposed to be genuinely, spiritually holy as leaders, not secular managers. Well, my second point was to begin to work through the qualifications and we're out of time. And um, it's so significant for us to find out who spiritual leaders really are. We want to take our time and not rush through the process. So we're going to stop at this point. But I do want you to be committed to this mini-series. Will you do that? This is the application moment. Just think in your heart. Will you pray for our church And pray for the leadership of our church and pray for who is supposed to be identified as deacons and deaconesses, who could be identified as an elder or an elder in training in our church. And let me say this more personally to you, ask yourself going into the fall season, what is it that you are supposed to do or work on or how are you supposed to grow within your giftedness here at Anchorage Grace Church? Will you do that? 
Seek out leaders, get cups of coffee, pour much caffeinated drink into your cup and think through, Lord, where am I supposed to serve here? Because life is a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away and you want to be useful to the master. Amen?